first reading from Second Corinthians. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For the, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Uh, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having his ministry by the mercy of God, uh, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced undis disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, we come before you, and uh, it says in your word, it says in uh, the first reading that um, we have a treasure in the midst of, of a jar of clay, that we're kind of, we're kind of like clay, uh, but there's a remarkable treasure that you've given us. And I pray that you would make that treasure clear, that you would make uh, our clayness, the, the, the humility, the difficulty, the, the, the weakness, uh, the fragility that we feel very often, will you make that uh, not something we run away from, but something that we uh, bring before you so that you would make the treasure clear to us that, that you are giving yourself to us. Make that clear to every one of us. Um, will you remove whatever veil might be obscuring our view of you? We want to see you in the face of Jesus Christ as you are. But we know that we can't like squint and see you clearly. You have to reveal yourself. So we ask you to reveal yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit right now. Make us unveiled so that we can see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And it's uh, helpful if you turn back to page six. We're going to be looking at um, uh, the reading from Paul's letter, uh, second letter to the Corinthians. Now, over the last few weeks, if you've been with us, we have wrapped up our series in the book of Exodus, but we're not quite done in a way. So um, part of the reason we were in Exodus is because we've said this before, Exodus provides something of an operating system for the rest of the Bible. So it's super hard to understand the rest of the Bible and even any number of aspects of the Christian life unless you understand the book of Exodus and the story of what God does there. And so that's why we were looking at it. And one of the themes, you remember this, don't you? I hope you do. One of the themes that we picked up at the end of Exodus is this, God's best gift is always... 
himself. Oh, you're such a good church. Well done, you. Um, yes, God's best gift is always himself. And I'm trying, if I can, to sear that into our memory. And here's why. I've said this before. It's easy for religious people to like God for the swag, for the stuff we get from, don't you like swag a little? Um, we, we, it's very easy to love God for the things that we get from him, but not for himself. And, and the thing is, it's easy. Part of the reason it's easy to love God for the things we get from him and not so much for himself is because we get so much from, for, from God. So we might get, you know, answers to prayer. We might get um, just the fact that we're breathing, that we're alive. We get the fact that we get to live in community. Um, we get maybe strength, emotional strength in the midst of difficulty. Whatever it is, we get lots of really good things from God. And all of that is fantastic. But if we only love God for the things we get from him, for the swag, then we fall short of the heart of vital, real, authentic Christianity. We fall short of it. The reason is real, authentic... Christianity is all about God giving himself. God gives himself to his enemies so that his enemies can become his children. And therefore, because that's the heart of the story, one of the signs of vital, authentic, real Christianity, Christianity that's alive, is the followers of Jesus just become absolutely captivated by God for who he is. And we get all kinds of great stuff from him. But beyond that and underneath that and in the midst of that, we love him for who he is. So that, so that um, God's majesty captivates us and God's love delights us and God's justice compels us. And we look at God and we say, you are our treasure. And when that's the case, that kind of Christianity that is deeply captivated by God for who he is will also be a Christianity that will tend to be allergic to hypocrisy and will be resilient in the midst of difficulty and will also be useful in the midst of a world that desperately needs a great deal. So I'm asking us to try to internalize that God's best gift is always himself. And part of that reason that it's important right now is that you know, Emmanuel, you can tell we are we are right at the beginning of a kind of a rebuilding, replanting, relaunching. Right? I mean, we're here gathered. You're uh, many of us are on Zoom right now. We're in a moment of transition, and one of the things that that means is that this is a crucial moment for us to remind ourselves what is the animating heart of everything that we do. Because all of us want us to be. I mean, I want us to be a church that we all like. Like, I want you to like church. I want to like church, as it happens. Um, however, more than that, I want us to be a church that Jesus likes. We want to be a church where Jesus looks and he says, have you considered my church Emmanuel? They're not perfect, not by a mile, I imagine. And yet I want Jesus to be able to say, and yet their instinct is to surrender to me quickly. And they're increasingly loving me for who I am and I am becoming their treasure. That's what I want Jesus to be able to say about us. Okay, all that's just kind of intro. What we're gonna do today is, um, you remember in Exodus, we, find, we found out that God's best gift is always himself. Today, I wanna show you from our epistle reading is that the apostle Paul picks up that idea from Exodus and he applies it to his own ministry. And what I want us to see is this, when God's best gift is his, himself and when we internalize that, it'll redefine our ideas about freedom it will uh, animate our transformation and it will motivate us in mission.
First of all, when we internalize God's best gift is himself, it will redefine freedom. Take a look at the first paragraph there. So um, this is in the first reading. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a church in Corinth, which is in Greece. Um, and Paul is writing out of a context of just teeth grinding pain and suffering. Now, we don't know all the details, but we do know that he's emerging from one of the darkest periods of his life. How do we know that? Well, because he tells us a bunch of times, including in chapter one, he says um, that uh, in the midst of the difficulty, I despaired of life itself or very nearly despaired of life itself. Pause. Don't answer this. But can you identify with that? You ever despaired of life itself? I know that some of us have. And one of the odd things is that when Paul emerges from this hell that he's been going through, his view of God is bigger and not smaller. And the experience of the darkness and walking through it causes him to see more and not less of God's beauty. And I want to know how that happens, because I want that to be the case in my life, and I want that to be the case in our life. I want us to be a place that comes out of this season and whatever other dark season we face in the future. I want us to be a people who come out of that captivated more by the beauty of Jesus Christ and not less. And so I want to know how that worked for Paul. Okay? Well, part of it is this. The Apostle Paul looked back to Exodus that story that shapes the operating system of the people of God. He looks back at Exodus and he realizes that what Jesus is giving him in the midst of difficulty is even better than the gift that God gave Moses and Israel all those years before. Let's go into this. Remember uh, Exodus. So uh, at the beginning of Exodus, Israel's having a terrible time, right? They're enslaved for a long time. And then God intervenes. You remember the story? God intervenes into their story and he rescues them. And it's fantastic. But remember, the story continues after their rescue. Even after they're rescued, Israel goes into the desert. And in the midst of the desert, they do not have a home and they feel that they do not have a home. And their vulnerability, their sensed vulnerability increases so much so that they increasingly distrust God and they rebel against God and they very nearly sabotage their whole experience of freedom. At the golden calf, remember? And yet, despite all that, through the mercy of God, God gives himself to Israel. God gives himself to Israel. We saw this in the last few weeks by coming among them in the midst of the tabernacle, the tent, which was a temple, which is also an embassy of God in the midst of the people of Israel. God comes among them and dwells with them, lives with them. God gives himself to the people of Israel. However, you remember this also. Do you remember there's social distancing at the tabernacle? We talked about this, right? There's a distance that has to be kept. And there's a veil. There's a curtain. And the curtain separated God from Israel. Israel could get close, but couldn't get all the way there. Couldn't get all the way up close to God. And the one person that could get really, really close was Moses. And yet after Moses got really, really close to the Lord, when he would come out and talk to Israel, he had to put a mask on. He had to put it, they called it a veil, but it was a mask. I don't know if it was an N95, I don't know, but it was a mask. And, and yet, even in the midst of that kind of social, spiritual distancing, whatever you want to call it, God's presence in the midst of his people was a gift that crowned all of God's other gifts to them. 
Okay, now in our first paragraph, Paul's arguing that as good as that was for Israel, Jesus has given even better. And in particular, Jesus, according to Paul, gives us a new kind of freedom. Take a look at verse 17. Verse 17 says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is, what's the word? Freedom. We're going to have to do better. What's the word? There we go. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, notice the word, like I told you to say, freedom. Say it. Thank you. And the other word is unveiled. Try that one. You're good. Now, the word freedom, of course, we all know this, has, is one of those words that means lots of different things to lots of different people. Sometimes we use the word freedom, and what we mean is political liberation, which is a fantastic meaning for the word, and you can find it in the Bible, notably in the book of Exodus. However, at other times, we use the word freedom to mean something like life without constraints. So sometimes we use the word, in fact, if you, if you I did this, if you, if you look up the word freedom in, in our English dictionaries, it's, it's typically a negative thing, a freedom from anything that's going to hold you back. Um, so, so I might feel free, we never say it quite this way, but it, I might feel free when I can pursue what I want without, being, without facing obstacles or constraints. Now, that sounds kind of appealing. The Bible comes at that and says, well, okay, but that sounds really good, especially at a distance. But um, the problem is if all of us pursue our own desires without constraints, um, somebody ends up getting exploited sometime. My freedom, if I pursue it without constraints, it will inhibit somebody else's freedom at some point. Um, so you can see this in Exodus. So uh, Pharaoh famously, you know, the man can live with very little constraints. Uh, and it ends up oppressing uh, a whole people, right? Um, but it, that's kind of easy. That's a straw man that's easy to knock down. Later on, Israel, after they uh, get out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness, they try this plan too, and, and it, and it uh, exhibits as the golden calf. And we saw this several weeks ago, that as they pursue the golden calf, their desires, they're, all, they're, they're pursuing their desires, and it almost certainly ends up with uh, some kind of sexual exploitation, and it also ends in violence. So it's, the Bible says that approach to freedom is like a mirage. It looks like freedom from a distance, but when you're close up, it ends up uh, um, not freedom. It ends up a kind of the opposite. But now keep in that in mind and go back to our reading, because the Apostle Paul is talking about a third type of freedom. He's talking about a freedom that is defined by unveiled access to God. Now go back to Exodus. Remember, um, Israel's political liberation was the beginning of their freedom. It was not the end of their freedom. The culmination of their freedom happened when God moved in, when God moved into the tabernacle so that in a limited but real way, they were free to know God and be known by God. Now, we, we can taste this just a little bit. Remember the first time, hopefully, you know, like for, for those of us who've been vaccinated, the first time you got to take off your mask inside with other people nearby, didn't it feel like freedom? I feel like freedom. I mean, it's just awesome, Okay. Paul's point here is that that kind of freedom by Jesus has been sent to the extreme. 
Because Jesus Christ took away the veil, both veils. Jesus is God overcoming all the kind of social distancing, overcoming all the spiritual distancing. Jesus is God who has been unmasked, that the veil in the tabernacle has been torn apart and torn down. And Jesus also allows us to take the veil off of our face, allows us to take, so to speak, the mask off our face so that we with unveiled face and God with an unveiled face can look at each other and love each other and know each other. We can be known by God and know him. That's part of the freedom we're all desiring towards each other right now. And that is a little taste of the greater freedom that Jesus Christ gives us with unveiled face. We can behold God's glory in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Verse 18. And it was that freedom. Emmanuel, it was that freedom. That freedom to know God up close through Christ that carried Paul through the hell of his darkness. Because whatever it is that Paul suffered, it was a suffering that drained everything that was enjoyable about life out of his experience so that he could say, I despaired of life itself. And yet when all of that was taken away, he still had Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, he had the freedom to access God and to receive God's grace and to live moment by moment and breath by breath in dependence upon God. And as he lived in that constant dependence and grace and intimacy that one can know with God, he found that Jesus's power worked in the middle of his weakness and through his weakness so that his suffering became a platform and a context in which he gained to know God in greater measure. And therefore, when Paul emerged from the darkness, he could see more and not less of Jesus's beauty. And his view of God was bigger and not smaller. Now, I don't want to sound like a triumphalist. Suffering is devastating. It was for Paul, it is for us, and it was for Jesus. And let's not ever soft-pedal that. And yet it is also true that when someone walks through suffering and meets Jesus, they come out of it speaking. You know this, don't you? They speak about God like someone speaks about their homeland. You know when someone speaks about their homeland, you know they're not getting it from National Geographic. You know they're not getting it from David Attenborough. They speak about it in a way that they've been there before. And when somebody walks with God in the midst of suffering and then they come out of it, they speak with God. They speak about God. He's not just a far-off deity. He's Father. And he's not, Jesus isn't just a moral teacher. He's my brother and my Lord and my Savior. And they, when they talk about the Spirit, they're not just talking about a kind of mystical mist that nobody knows what it is, but they're talking about... Living water that gives me life. And the suffering of our lives, hell as it is, they know that it will not finally define them forever. Because they belong to a God who could not be defeated by a Roman cross. In other words, they're free to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 18. Do you see how freedom to behold God leads to transformation so that we become like him degree by degree? 
Now, let me, let me real quick show you three ways this transformation happens, three shifts. When God becomes God's best gift in your life, and that really lands, and you know the freedom of knowing God face-to-face in, the, in Jesus Christ, there's three transformations at least that occur. And here's the first one. God shifts you from fear to resilient courage. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What? Paul had every reason to lose heart. Read the rest of his story. I mean, he was, he was uh, abused and rejected. He was, uh, 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 had all kinds of legal and political trouble, though it was all of it unjust. He had health problems. It was bad. He had lots of reasons to lose heart. Do you? But as Jesus grew bigger in his life, he could look at Jesus and he could know that Jesus had suffered everything that he had suffered. And if Paul belonged to Jesus Christ, then he knew that Jesus would walk with him in the midst of the fire. And that's what 2 Corinthians is about to a great degree. Suffering is horrible. Suffering in isolation is unbearable. And suffering when you have a friend who's been through the same thing and has come out the other side, that is a glimmer of hope. And that's what Jesus gives Paul here. So that Paul sees Jesus' glory face to face. And that experience shifts him from fear to a resilient courage so that he does not lose heart. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you. Secondly, when you receive God's best gift and it lands on your life, there's a shift from hypocrisy to authenticity. Verse 2. But we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You see the authenticity there? It's just like straightforward. We're not trying to tamper. We're not trying to play games. We're just going to hold up Jesus. And that authenticity uh, um, uh, commends itself to people's conscience. Well, how does that happen? Well, everybody knows that religious hypocrisy is super common, right? And it's disgusting. Everybody thinks so. Of course, everybody's participant in it, at least all religious people in some way, so give that a thought. But here's, here's the thing. Very often, the root cause, one of the root causes of religious hypocrisy is that we love God mainly for the swag. And the swag that we love God for is that, is that we want our, our, our ego to be enhanced. Our ego eclipses God. And the thing we really love is ourself. And, and being religious adds to our ego in one way or the other. And so our religious experience and our religious expression becomes in greater ways self-marketing. We want to tamper with things. We want to uh, 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 twist it just a little bit so that we come out looking good. And Paul knew all about that. He had had a lot of experience personally with that. He was good at it. And then Jesus intervened in his life. And the more Jesus became clear to him, the more his ego was eclipsed by Jesus. And that meant that his, he could just be free. He could be free of having to live for his ego, and he could love Jesus for who Jesus is, and therefore he could hold up Jesus for who Jesus is and just be honest about it and be authentic. And hypocrisy falls, authenticity rises, and people notice it. So when God is God's best gift in your life, um, it'll shift you, it'll redefine freedom, it'll transform you. Um, and one of the, the third way it'll transform you is it'll shift you from control to being a servant. Verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. See the eclipse of ego? But Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants. The word is slaves for Jesus' sake. 
Paul wasn't trying to control the world, but he was ready to serve it. And he wasn't always like that, right? Um, Paul started out leveraging religion to coerce, control others. He was horrible. But then he met Jesus, or better, Jesus intervened in his life. And he saw with unveiled face who God really is. And he realized, as he got to know Jesus, that God is a God who serves. And he realized that Jesus' greatest moment was when he was giving his life for his enemies, including Paul. And that redefines greatness for Paul and for the rest of the New Testament, so that Paul desires and his ambition is to set aside coercion and control and trying to assert himself, and rather he wants to give himself away as Jesus has given himself to him. He wants to give away his life in service, and that's what Jesus wants to call us to. Isn't it liberating? We don't have to try to run the world, but we can be free to serve it. And that's where we need to land. God's best gift is always himself. When he gives us that gift, it gives us a new kind of freedom. It also transforms us. And then thirdly, it leads us out into mission. Do you notice that this whole reading is really about Paul's mission? It's about ministry. Uh, verse 1, Paul says, we have this ministry. Verse 6, he describes how he proclaims Jesus Christ. And even when he's talking about Moses, he's actually talking about how his ministry is remarkably um, uh, a, a, an enhancement over and against Moses' ministry. Emmanuel, all of this highlights for us the privilege and the urgency of mission. Because if it's true that God's best gift is, is himself, and if it's true that God gave us himself in Jesus Christ, and if it's true that true freedom is the freedom to know God and be known by God, then it is also true that our world is in desperate need of that kind of freedom. Our world is in desperate need to receive this kind of gift. And you can see the urgency in verse 4. Because in verse 4, Paul talks about the God of this world who blinds people from seeing God. That is to say, um, the God of this world, when he's talking about the devil, the way the devil keeps us ensnared is by keeping us from seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the only way that veil is removed is when people see, when, uh, when Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Because Paul says when we proclaim and describe Jesus Christ, something remarkable happens, something that is more powerful than the God of this world the devil can ever withstand. Paul says that in verse 6, when we proclaim Jesus Christ, what happens is that the same God who created the universe, the same God who said light shine out of darkness, works right into the heart of the person who's been veiled, works right into the heart and works a miracle of recreation so that God's spirit comes into the person and the person is able to see what they previously could not see. They're able to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And they're set free, just like Paul was set free. Just like I trust you have been set free. And if you have not yet been set free, let me promise you that Jesus Christ right now wants to set you free. And I guess that's the question, Emmanuel. Has the Lord unmasked himself to you? And is the Lord unmasking you now? Are you up close to him? Or do you feel in your heart a recoiling, a putting back on a mask, and of stepping away? 
Jesus wants to take off his mask and yours, <laughs> and he wants to give you a freedom. And that happens when we turn to the Lord, it says in our text. When you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. Jesus Christ is God's best gift to you. Jesus gave all that he is for you when he died upon the cross. He held nothing back. He loved you in the moment when you were his enemy, when you were running away from him. Maybe right now you're running away from him, and Jesus is right now loving you, and he proved his love for you, and he gave his life for you upon the cross. And right now he is calling you, he is calling you to turn to him, which is to say he's saying it's time to surrender, all of it. Yeah, it's time to fully surrender. Nothing held back, no you're talking to the one to whom all hearts are open when you're talking to Jesus. So there's no sense hiding. He can see you already, but he wants you to remove your mask and to remove everything until you are surrendered to him. So surrender to him now. And as you surrender to him, you will find him to be God's best gift. And you will find your heart free, free to love, the, love God simply for who he is. And then all the gifts that he gives you will be animated in greater measure. And then the Lord with that freedom will send us out in mission. And it will be a high honor and privilege for us to describe to others the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Emmanuel, that's where the Lord is taking us. Amen. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.